Welcome to Beyond the Book, the literary podcast of the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm your host, book editor John McMurtry. On this episode, we feature an interview with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who co-founded the world-renowned City Lights Books in 1953. Ferlinghetti has a birthday coming up. He'll turn 99 on March 24th. Ferlinghetti is a monumental figure in the world of letters. He published numerous beat writers at City Lights Publishers, founded in 1955, and he's also, of course, a poet in his own right. In fact, he has a new book out. New Directions recently published a collection titled Ferlinghetti's Greatest Poems. I chatted with the former Poet Laureate of San Francisco at his apartment in North Beach. So, Mr. Ferlinghetti, thanks very much. You can't call a poet Mr. That's right. <laughs> we can start that over as well. Lawrence, thanks very much for graciously wel- welcoming. I'm going to do that one again since we're doing a recording of it. Lawrence, thanks very much for graciously welcoming me to your place. I thought we could go back in time a little bit. Uh, do you remember the first poem you wrote? Do I remember the first poem I, I wrote? Yes. Uh, well, I can remember the first poem in the Coney Island of the Mine, which was... The, the poems in Coney Island of the Mine were really my... Uh, first poems that I thought should be published. Before that was a, a little book called Pictures of the Gone World, which was... Uh, sort of working up to mm-hmm. the poems in Coney Island, mm-hmm. but um, I remember the poems in Coney Island quite well. You, you want me to recite the first one? <laughs> oh, I'll have you reciting some poems in a bit. I think I have a couple for you in mind, in fact. So I'm I'm hoping that that will work for you. What drew you to poetry as a young man? What? What drew you to poetry as a young man? Oh, some dame. Some dame. <laughs> Do you remember her name? Well, uh, um, no. <laughs> when would that have been? Well, I, I really didn't start reading poetry in depth until I was in Paris on the GI Bill. I was getting a doctorate at the Sorbonne. And um, that's when I really got into it. When I, I was in the Navy four years, I never had, a desk, never had a desk job in the Navy. I was one ship to the next. I was in the Normandy invasion the first morning. and But there was no time for reading, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were kind enough last year to write something for us in the Chronicle about your time in the Navy. And that actually, I remember you writing that you did, in fact, have some time to read books. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> we, uh, we were a commissioned vessel, even though we were only 110 feet long. It was a subchaser. So we had all the nooks and crannies on the ship stuffed with modern library editions. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember any, any titles from the, from that library? Well, there are lots of James Joyce and, and uh, lots of T.S. Eliot. 
Always good on the Navy and ship. lots of Ezra Pound. I wonder if Ezra Pound is still, if there are still Ezra Pound books in the U.S. Navy these days on ships. I doubt it. <laughs> so before this, before Paris, before the Navy, you were raised in New York. And you earned a bachelor's degree in journalism at the oh, University of North Carolina, right? Chapel Hill. Right. I went to Chapel Hill because Thomas Wolfe, who wrote Look, Homer, and Angel, hmm. uh, had gone there. And he had a magazine in, hmm. at the university. And, and so, like, like a lot of great writers over the years, you got your start in sports. In what? In sports. You're, you were writing, you are covering sports, right? Yeah, I was. Do you remember any of those stories? What, what sort of anything <laughs> no. that stands out? Any bylines? They were they were forgettable. <laughs> what did you did you at that time envision a did you envision did you envision a career in journalism at that point? Oh yeah, definitely. What interested it, you it about it? What sort of the only thing I knew how to do was write. The only thing I had any talent for was to write, and. Uh, so I thought I would go where Thomas Wolfe went to college and maybe I could become like him. Mm. I mean, in, in my generation, his book, Look Homer and Angel, was a very important book. Mm. Uh, and it's the kind of book that you have to read when you're, say, 18. When If you read it when you're 40 or 50, it seems too effusive and too romantic. So you you were at an impressionable age. Yeah, but when you're 18, it was really it was an important book. And then after after the Navy, uh, you were in France. This is maybe a silly question, but uh, what made you de- decide to move to Paris after the war? Yeah, what? What? This might be a silly question, but what made you decide to move to Paris after the war? Uh, because. Uh, I spent uh, about two years of my very early years in Paris with with a French aunt. When my mother was sick and couldn't take care of me, and, uh, a French aunt took me to France, and we lived near Strasbourg, and I uh, lived there long enough to learn the language, so I still recall, re- retain it, and I, I sort of felt like France was my second home, mm-hmm. and so... Uh, it took me years to get back there, but so after the war, I was twenty six, twenty seven, and I went to France because I felt like I was returning to my second home still. Hmm. And uh, and you, unlike many writers before you, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, etc., uh, you had some actual you got some actual work done there right you you were not hanging out at cafes and i mean you were hey i mean how to put it you were getting a doctorate as you said this is serious stuff yeah but i wrote the doctorate and i wrote the the thesis in the back of a cafe (laughs) 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 it was the cafe mabillon which was uh on the boulevard on the boulevard saint germain does it still exist you know Oh yeah, but now it's a tourist place. Oh, so back back then it was an authentic. Yeah, well, I was hanging out at George Whitman's bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, which was called uh, La Librerie Mistral at that time. I see. He changed the name to Shakespeare and Company in about 1961. 
Did you ever? Uh... So George was my oldest friend. I, I, I hung out at Shakespeare and Company, and many, many visits to George. Many, many times I stayed in the, in the bookstore. So you stayed upstairs where they can yeah, where yeah. they put people up. Yeah. Hmm. When so when would that have been? That would have been in in the, in the, in the, well I was there first. It would have been 19, 1947, 1947, and George's store was called Le Mistral. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I left Paris in 1950 on January 1st and arrived here the next day. Again, <laughs> an an obvious question perhaps but i mean you're you're going to paris and san francisco you chose well what why san francisco well it seemed like it was still the last frontier mm-hmm. which it isn't anymore i mean it was in 1951 it, the city it was, it was a wide open city and it seemed like you could do anything you wanted to here it was like there was so much ne- so much missing that if it was going to be a real city there's so much that it had to had to get that it didn't have and for instance uh, as far as bookstores goes the, the all the bookstores closed at 5 p.m. and they weren't open on the weekends and there was no place to sit down you and there's usually a clerk on top of on top of you asking you what you wanted hmm. and so that's what the first thing i realized there was no bookstore to become the locus for the literary community mm-hmm. uh, it's really important for if you're going to have a literary community it has to have a locus it just can't be out there in the air so from the very beginning when we started city lights in june 1953 the idea was to make it a locus for the the uh, the new literary community that had developed out of the Berkeley Renaissance so called and uh, and it proved to be true people just flocked to it because there had been no locus for the literary life mhm mhm back to san francisco and how it's changing what what has changed the most about the city in your opinion over those years well in, in 1951 It was from the 50s until today. Oh well. <laughs> a lot certainly, but what has changed the most for you? You have to opinion? write a couple of books to cover <laughs> that. It's like a, But I mean it was still a small in 1951 San Francisco was a small provincial capital. And it was provincial. For instance, there was no place in town to get a croissant. except in the basement of the city of paris department store where there was a cafe called uh, i don't know what it was called a little tiny cafe in the basement of city of uh, the city of paris and so that was a test of <laughs> our provinciality <laughs> where else in america i wonder could one get a good croissant in the 1950s <laughs> yeah, outside true. of perhaps manhattan yeah that's true the true judge of culture can you get a croissant <laughs> so what needs to change in san francisco in your opinion in the bay area to keep artists here 
Well, it, it kept me. What kept me here was the bookstore because it was just uh, an idea that just grew and grew, and it mm -hmm. just kept going, and I couldn't leave. <laughs> and what what about now? What needs to change now, in your opinion, for it to remain a haven, if at all? Oh well, for... today. San Francisco now is going through a bigger boom. It's it's Boomtown USA. It's a bigger boom than after the gold rush in the 1850s and 60s, the 1850s and 60s. The, the Boomtown today is transforming San Francisco into something you're not even going to recognize in another 15 years. It's like uh, it hasn't quite hit North Beach yet. Uh, the boom quite hasn't hasn't hit North Beach yet, but the rest of the town, uh, especially down where the Chronicle is, it's just a, a huge traffic jam everywhere. And the automobile is transforming and ruining most of the cities, not just San Francisco. I call it Autogeddon. It's the Autogeddon is ruining cities. You know, I, I owe you thanks for giving me a good dream last night. This is going a little somewhere else, but I owe you thanks for giving me a good dream last night. I reread some poems from your new collection, several of which explore your love of Paris. And I woke up remembering a dream of walking through old cobbled streets of the city, of that city, including a visit to an old bar that don't exist anymore. In one of your poems, you quote Allen Ginsberg's, uh, Allen Ginsberg talking about, quote, solidified nostalgia. Oh, yeah. That, that, phrasing struck with, uh, stuck, that phrasing stuck with me clearly because your poem had this power to transport me to a special place within hours of reading it. So people read good poetry before you go to bed if you want to have good dreams. Well, I think solidified nostalgia was actually Allen Ginsberg's term. We were on right. the plane flying from Paris to Milan, and we were looking down at, at Paris, and he said solidified nostalgia. Mm -hmm. What have you been dreaming about lately? What? What have you been dreaming about lately, do you know? Can you tell me? Uh, Dreams figure prominently in, in these poems, in your, your greatest poems collection. Well, it seems to me that uh, the older I get, the, the more my dreams are, are at an earlier and earlier time. Your poems are a singular mix of humor and pathos. Francis Ford Coppola has this great line, Lawrence get, gets you laughing, Lawrence gets you laughing, then hits you with the truth. <laughs> is it becoming more difficult for you to sustain the laughter? Well, no. Okay. Francis was totally right, though. I, it, it seems that I have so many poems that do that. I wondered because I, I felt this book, Ferlinghetti's Greatest poem, Poems, Ferlinghetti's Greatest Poems, it's chronological and... Uh, there's a lot of rapturous language early on, and then it moves, I think... There's what kind of language? It's full of rapture. Oh. And as you age, and perhaps with the times, with the politics, 
it seems the poems are a little bit darker. Well, yeah, I mean, lyricism is the is part of the age of youth. When you're youth, you, you're lyric. Right. <laughs> Later on, you become tragic. <laughs> so that's what's going on here. What's the last poem you wrote? The last poem I wrote? Uh, it was published in The Nation magazine. I've heard of it. And it's, uh, it's called Trump's Trojan Horse. Homer didn't live long enough to tell of Trump's Trojan Horse. From which all the president's men burst out in the White House to destroy democracy and institute absolute rule by corporations. Bow down, oh common man, bow down. Actually, that's not a very good reading of it. Cause I, well, from memory it is. Thank you for that. How will you celebrate your 99th birthday? <laughs> Um, I don't see any reason to celebrate getting older. It's not, it's not a cause of celebration. What will you be doing that day, do you know? Oh, we'll have a little family gathering, that's about it. Ferlinghetti's eyesight is fading, but he insisted on reading some of his poems. Some he did from memory, others he read using a projector on his desk that magnifies the type size in his books. Here he is reciting from A Coney Island of the Mind, from memory. In Goya's greatest scenes, we seem to see the people of the world exactly at the moment when they first attain the title of Suffering Humanity. They writhe upon the page in a veritable rage of adversity, heaped up, groaning with babies and bayonets under cement skies in an abstract landscape of blasted trees, slippery gibbets, and all the other hollering monsters of the imagination of disaster. They are so bloody real, it is as if they really still existed. And they do. Only the landscape is changed. They still arrange along the roads, plagued. We still arrange along the roads, plagued by legionnaires, false windmills, and demented roosters. We are the same people, only further from home, on freeways, fifty lanes wide, on a concrete continent spaced with bland billboards illustrating imbecile illusions of happiness. The scene shows fewer tumbrils, but more spaced-out citizens in painted cars, and they have strange license plates and engines that devour America. And then for a little uh, light comic relief. Please. Don't let that horse eat that violin, cried Chagall's mother. <laughs> but Chagall kept right on painting, the horse with violin in mouth. 
And when he finally finished it, he jumped up upon the horse and rode away, waving the violin. And then to the first naked nudie game across. And there were no strings attached. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you. See, it was like this. When we waltz into this place, a couple of far-out cats is doing an Aztec two-step, and I says, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me, see, and says, You and me could really exist. (laughs) Wow, I says. Only the next day... She has bad teeth and really hates poetry. And then Ferlinghetti turned to reading from his book, Poetry as Insurgent Art, published by New Directions in 2007. Pity the Nation, after Khalil Gibran. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice, but aims to rule the world by force and by torture, and knows no other language but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people of my country. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Thank you. That was good. It was. Well, Lawrence Perlinghetti, thank you very much. Well, I'd like to read more poems. Your time. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me what is the function of the poet, which is a usual question, I guess. <laughs> no. So I have nothing a, usual here. <laughs> so I have a book published by New Directions just two or three years ago called "Poetry as Insurgent Art," and I'd like to read just a little, little parts of it. And I did want to ask you, actually, if you drew hope from what has been happening in the past year with a lot of uh, poetry, a lot of uh, resistance poetry, right? Yeah. And you, several you mean, titles have been published in the past you mean year. online. There's a lot online. Books, collections. Yeah. So, as someone who has been an activist poet and publisher, yeah. I imagine this is something that... Yeah. So, If you would be a poet, write living newspapers, be a reporter from outer space, filing dispatches to some supreme managing editor who believes in full disclosure and has a low tolerance for bull poop. (laughs) I could go on and on from this book. I love to read from it. Yes, of course. Don't destroy the world unless you have something better to replace it.
Be committed to something but yourself. Be passionate about it. If you would snatch fame from the flames, where is your burning bow? Where where your arrows of desire? Where your wit on fire? When the poet lets down his pants, his ars poetica should be evident, giving rise to lyric er erections. The master class starts wars. The lower classes fight them. Governments lie. The voice of the government is often not the voice of the people. Speak up, act out. Silence is complicity. Be the gadfly of the state and also its firefly. And if you have two loaves of bread, do as the Greeks did. Sell one and with the coin of the realm buy sunflowers. Wake up! The world's on fire! Have a nice day. Thanks for listening to this edition of Beyond the Book, part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. I'm your host, John McMurtry, the book editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. You can follow me on Twitter at McMurtrySF. That's M-C-M-U-R-T-R-I-E-S-F. Our theme music is Kick Push by Ryan Little, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. This show was produced by Fernando Diaz and me. You can listen to more podcasts at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts.